Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to another brand new episode of Stab in the Dark, the alibi podcast that investigates the worlds of crime fiction and TV crime drama that binge watches an entire true crime documentary series in one weekend while eating only crisps and cold sausages and dressed in pyjamas and is now firmly convinced that its next door neighbour is a serial killer. Yes, in this episode, we're going to be talking about the rise of true crime in books, podcasts and TV documentaries. And we'll be taking a closer look at how this subgenre of crime has become such a phenomenon, as well as asking why it's so addictive. Joining me in our virtual incident room to investigate these pressing matters are two amazing crime writers who have used true crime as a backdrop for their own fictional stories. The multi-award-winning Denise Miner and the brilliant Matt Veselovsky, who sets his stories in the fascinating world of investigative true crime podcasts. My name's Mark Gilliam, and welcome to A Stab in the Dark. Denise, Matt, welcome to A Stab in the Dark. Hi. Hi, how are you? Not bad. Coping. Now, um, as I mentioned in the intro, you've, you've both used true crime as a springboard for the books. So is true crime something that the that, that pair of you have always found interesting? Matt? Yeah, I mean, true crime um, is something that's fascinated me from being really quite young. Um, I was a big Marilyn Manson fan as a, as a teenager. And uh, I read this sort of unauthorised biography of him. And this book mainly padded itself out through talking about serial killers because he named himself after Marilyn Monroe and Charles Manson and all his bandmates named themselves after um, serial killers too. So a lot of this book was about serial killers. But basically, Twiggy Ramirez, there was this great big chunk in the book about Richard Ramirez and I could not get enough of reading about these serial killers. And then, um, and so I used to sort of frequent Newcastle City Library and get all the Brian Masters books about people like Dennis Nielsen and that sort of thing. And it was just, it just, I loved it. I couldn't get enough true crime from... How old, how old were you? When, when are we talking here? Probably, I was probably around 16, 17, something like that. Um, and I was obviously reading a lot of fiction, but then I started reading about Elizabeth Bathory, who's like the world's best or best serial killer, killed the most people, <laughs> uh, this Hungarian countess. And it blew me away. And... Um, since then, I haven't stopped. <laughs> what about you, Denise? When did you get bitten by the true crime bug? God, I don't know. I've always read true crime and I've always really liked um, actually incorporated true crime into my novels. One of the characters in one of my early books is called Paddy Meehan, and that is about an actual bank robber in Glasgow. So it's sort of true crime intercut with fictional crime. But I've always really loved true crime. And one of the things that I really love about it is not just the gore, but the way the narrative works, the way the narrative arc works, because, as you know, when we write crime fiction, it has to make sense and it has to hit certain narrative beats. Whereas in true crime, all sorts of mad things happen, you know, like um, people get done for tax evasion or somebody leaves the the 
gun on the front seat of the car or you know somebody forgets uh, they go shoplifting after committing a series of murders just really unlikely things it's just the way the narrative kind of splinters off and goes into really unlikely places but also the form of true crime I mean one of the things I love about true crime is trashy true crime I'm not interested in um, classy true crime that you know talks about you know how did this person become so morally devoid of you know decency when did they lose Jesus I, I want to read things about there was one book I read um, and it was um, I think it was called the gangs of London and uh, it, it used the phrase the the coppers came down on him like an avalanche of truncheons that's that's what I'm here for that kind of trash <laughs> That's the weird thing is that one of the things this this big growth in podcasts about true crime seems to have done is to make it respectable, you know, because it, it always used to be a little bit sleazy, a little bit disreputable. And clearly that's the stuff you like. That is the stuff I like. And, you know, I hate <laughs> it when things because we have lived through crime writing becoming respectable. But, Mark, I know that you started at a time when it was quite a dodgy thing to do. We used to constantly have conversations about whether or not it was a valid form and now people are sending us their PhD theses about your work <laughs> do you know what I mean I'm not here for that I want how did, that happen? how did that happen well let's Denise let's let, I want to talk to you about the long drop uh which came out in 2017 um so for listeners who haven't read the long drop and anybody who hasn't read the long drop what the hell is wrong with you tell us a little bit about that it's a true case that happened in Glasgow in 1958 and it was a man who was breaking into houses and killing everybody and then hanging about the house uh, for days sometimes. He was feeding the cat, he was shutting the curtains and opening them during the day to make it look as if the people were still alive. And uh, the, the father of one of the families was arrested for the first set of murders. And he got out of prison and he said, I will pay for information leading to the conviction of the real murderer. And one of the people who came forward was the real murderer. And he said, I don't want any money. What I want to do is meet you for a drink. So the two of them met for a drink and no one knows what happened that night. But they were together for 11 hours and they went on a bender all around Glasgow. So it's a sort of reimagining of that intercut with the court case. So is it is it a story that you've been aware of for a long time? Is it is it something you knew really well? No, it wasn't. I, I put on a play about it and it was because I had a commission and I was short of something and I was reading a brilliant book about um, uh, Peter Manuel, who was the murderer. And there was a stray line in it about that. It said one of the weirdest things that happened was he did meet him for a drink and no one knows what happened. So I thought it would be an innocent man meeting this murderer and then realising over the course of the evening that he was the murderer. So I put on a play in Glasgow and it was lunchtime theatre and it was all um, pensioners who came to see it and of course pensioners in Glasgow are incredibly bullshit and they all stopped me at the end every day and said you've told that wrong that's it's a much better story than the story you've told the story actually is that he knew and he had paid someone to go in and kill his family and uh, and they, that was them sorting out the deal about who was going to plead guilty and stuff like that but it was just a much much better story but what after um, in in cold blood and after the executioner song true crime became a bit respectable and it started to follow this kind of military history narrative curve of someone's total bibliography but real true crime looks at the incident just that one incident it looks really closely and that was really what I wanted to do was sort of explore that and how when you were writing it how hidebound are you by the facts 
I mean, there are certain things you have to stick to. I mean, obviously, within, you know, within the book, you're doing a lot of imagining and, a lot, you know, making a lot of stuff up. But there are still the facts which you presumably can't stray from. You really can stray from them. There's a sort of, they, they went out for 11 hours and I could work out where they'd been apart from about two and a half hours in the middle of the night. It takes them three hours to drive somewhere that takes 10 minutes. And I totally made that up. But actually, you know, I think if you're a murderer, people can make up anything they like about you. To hell with you. I'm not interested. <laughs> They're not going to sue, are they? (laughs) No, do you know what I mean? And and they didn't have any children. And I do think, you know, um, to a certain extent, if you're you're talking about true crime and you're talking about people who do appalling things, just make it up. What about what about your most recent novel, Conviction, which is more explicitly based on the whole phenomenon of true crime? Where did that one come from? Well, it was about it's about a woman whose life is falling apart and she's obsessed with true crime and she's listening to a podcast and recognizes somebody in it. And she goes off, she leaves her life and goes off on a sort of road trip to try and solve this crime. And that came from reviews of the long drop, because a journalist asked me about the ethics of true crime, and he said, you know, I was very uncomfortable about the long drop and the fact that you suggest that someone was guilty who wasn't guilty. And, and I thought that was a really valid point. And um, I started thinking about it. And, I start, and uh, you know, at that time, true crime was becoming huge. And posses were forming and going off and trying to solve the case of Adnan Said. And, you know, and they actually started announcing in the States, um, please come forward if you have any information. Please don't interview witnesses or try and pick up any evidence yourself because cases are being dropped because posses who have listened to true crime podcasts are interfering. And um, so this was, you know, the armchair detective or the computer detective that you see in things like, you know, don't, don't, don't fuck with cats, which is a Netflix documentary. Yeah. I'm sorry for swearing twice, Mark. I know you hate bad language. but That's um, twice in only 10 minutes. I'm, um, I'm expecting way more than that. <laughs> um, I, you know, I love the idea of someone walking out of their own story into someone else's story, which is the experience of being told a story, whether it's in a book or in a podcast. And, you know, how refreshing that is and how we do that to get away from bad situations. Just thought that was a really interesting conceit. Well, you talk, you talk about these posses, these true crime posses. Um, do you know the book I'll Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McNamara? And she, and she details this journey into investigating the, the true crime. And she gets drawn into this bizarre world of kind of forums and chat rooms. And they're full of these people who are obsessed with solving these crimes that the police can't. When does it when does it stop being a harmless hobby and start becoming kind of vigilantism? I mean, is it dangerous? That see, that's so interesting because if you think about the way the police are constructed in the states, I mean, over here people go through training and all this kind of thing, but in the states you get voted in to be a sheriff. I mean, how different is that than than yeah. being someone who really knows a lot about forensic? Um, odontology for example you're a dentist with I mean I, I think it's really interesting and I, I don't know where the I don't know where the gray area is but I think the idea that justice is professionalized as someone who did law and taught law the idea that justice should only be left to professionals is really problematic that's problematic but you know a lot of these policies I mean cold cases have been solved and there are podcasts that are you know um that like the murder room which are specifically about asking the the audience to come forward and help them. And they're, they're policemen who are asking people to come forward and help them with cold cases. Um, and, uh, you know, I think um, the idea of community justice is really interesting. So, I mean, I, th- yeah, I the think... Wis- the wisdom of crowds, right? Yeah, I mean, I think ethically, you know, we should have a big, long discussion about it. And I don't think there are, there are very clear answers. 
But, um, you know, if you want to be ethically correct, I would just stay off Reddit altogether because everybody's on Reddit. <laughs> you hinted about, you, you mentioned something about this at the beginning. Um, a, a lot of thought, you know, it, it gets poured into the question of why is crime fiction, TV crime drama so popular? And one of the theories put forward is that it's because at the end of our books and, and TV dramas based on books or whatever it is, justice is usually served, right? Uh, you know, the, the, the bad people usually get what's coming to them. And of course, that doesn't always happen with true crime. So if that's not what people are getting out of it, what else are they getting out of it? I think they're getting a glimpse into different worlds the way you do in fiction. And I think, um, I think there is always some kind of a resolve. Um, it, you know, if you think about um, crime fiction that doesn't resolve tidily with the bad guy, I mean, sometimes crime fiction resolves in ways that are really intensely problematic, like the police shoot the guy at the end without yeah. having a trial. You know, there are lots of narrative ways of resolving things without having them be very tidy, and that's him put away in a cupboard in Sing Sing and we never hear from him again. But I mean, at the, at the end of Serial, when, when uh, you know, the case of Adnan Sai wasn't tied up in a neat little bow at the end, like it would be, you know, nine times out of ten in a book or a TV drama, people were going bonkers. You know, it's, it's like if, you, if you're used to reading a whole bunch of Agatha Christie and then you suddenly go, oh, let's give this true crime thing. And at the end of it, they just go, and we still don't know. You're just going to go mental, right? Well, that was particularly problematic. I mean, I don't know what Matt thought about that, but I thought that Serial Season 1 was particularly problematic, and I think that gave birth to a whole big... Um, rec, you know, there's like, like, I think four podcasts have come out of that, try, you know, pro-Adnan, against that Adnan. I mean, just, you know, loads of... Um, I, I think it was so problematic, it sort of spawned a whole world. Um, and, I, I, and I think the reason it was problematic was because... At the end of the day, if you're doing true crime, you have to take a position. You can't just say, well, on one hand, but also on the other hand. You can't be rhetorical about it. You have to be prepared to take a position and you have to be prepared to present evidence for one case or another. But that it wasn't that they didn't solve it. It was that they didn't take a position. Well, I mean, you know, there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of nonsense talked about how true crimes, things like that, I don't know what you think, Matt, is, is more objective in a way. And of course it isn't, because there's subjectivity in every edit, in every decision you make about which bit of an interview you're going to put out or whatever. I, I presume you're a big fan of Serial, Matt? Yeah, well, Serial was the original, um, it, was the, it was the inspiration for me to actually write crime. I'd never written a crime novel before I'd heard Serial. I'd, okay. honest, I'd never even really read any crime. I'd read true crime, but that was it. I'd never really read crime, crime fiction before I heard Serial. And then I tried to write a book in the form of it. It was almost like a little homage to it. I didn't think it would even work. So well, it, um, did, it did. And, and here I am now crossing out question. So where did you get this idea for the format of an investigative <laughs> journalist? Uh, does it go back to something like Serial? Well, it, it, it's great to hear that it does. Now you're on to what, the fourth Scott King book? Yes. And, and it was only ever meant to be one. Um, okay. It was supposed to be a one-off, and like I say, it was just supposed to be an experiment while I was trying to write the next great horror novel. What I what I love about the books, Matt, is that apart from you know they're they're hugely engrossing stories, but you also very much focus on what kind of toll they have on on King himself, on the journalist, on the person that's doing the investigating. Is that something that's really important to you? Yeah, I think so. I think um, when I first started writing it, Scott King was only supposed to be. Um, a sort of vessel for the story, almost just a narrator. I was just, I'm kind of mimic Sarah Koenig's uh, rhythm of how she spoke. And as I wrote, the more it would start to trickle through and the more he would start being drawn in. And however much I tried to leave him out, the story would pull him in. 
Um, and it was really interesting. And people would ask me more about him. And I would say, I don't really know a lot about him. And it's more been a journey for me getting to know him as I've been writing the series, which has been quite interesting. The latest one I'm writing at the minute is where he's kind of gone, oh, fuck this, I'm getting all in now. <laughs> those, those are the series I really love, the series where the writer didn't actually intend necessarily for there to be four or six or 20 books about this character. But, you know, him or her just keeps forcing their way into the stories. I love that stuff. Oh, thank you. Is that um, how it worked? Yeah, absolutely, exactly how it worked. Um, and it was just interesting what Denise, you were saying earlier about um, podcasts now becoming involved in the actual cases. There's a podcast, I don't know if you've, either of you have heard of it, called Truth and Justice, which was, it started as... Um, a serial, like an, uh, a serial fan podcast and now investigates cold cases and now is actually making genuine changes to injustice that's happened, people being wrongly accused and wrongly imprisoned. Um, and it's sort of gone a bit meta, you know, it's gone around the side where the podcast is now the driving force behind people getting real justice. It's fascinating. Well, when these groups get together in, in chat rooms or whatever it might be, and they start looking at cold cases and, and they start going, oh, we, th we think we've uncovered something, and they get in, in touch as they should with the, with the authorities, do the police take them seriously? Do the police go, oh, it's a bunch of these idiots off Reddit or whatever it is? Or do they actually, I mean, are, are, there, are there cases where the police have then reinvestigated something on the basis of what amateur detectives have uncovered? There's definitely the West, I don't know if you know the West Memphis Three case from the 90s, where three uh, little boys, they were called uh, Stevie Branch, Christopher Byers and Michael Moore, these three eight-year-olds were found trussed up and drowned in a river in Arkansas, in this little town in Arkansas. And these three teenagers, the local goth kids, got put in prison. Two of them got 20 years, one of them got sentenced to death. When there was no DNA evidence, there was no evidence whatsoever. They didn't get released from prison till 2011, I believe. Um, and they still had to admit that they did it. They, it was ridiculous. But now this, there's a podcast that's now trying to find out who actually killed these three young kids. Um, and they're now sort of having, they're saying to the local DA, you need to release the evidence we tested. And that's all because of a podcast. And you think now, People are starting to listen. There's experts on podcasts. Jim, uh, there's a guy called Jim Clementi, who's um, a retired FBI profiler who now works with a number of podcasts. You know, really sort of forensic and professionals discussing cases now on podcasts, where I think it's gone from being almost fans to now being a legitimate form of investigation. But we have to say it's not just podcasts because the West Memphis Three were released because of the Peter Jackson documentary. Yes, That's, that okay. is that is why they were released. So, so documentaries like on Netflix or on Amazon and Apple TV, they've had a huge effect as well. But what you've seen with podcasts is they're affecting how seriously um, documentaries are taken about true crime because they used to be really trashy and they used to be, you know, you would have lots of terrible reconstructions. I don't know yeah. if you've ever watched Wives with Knives. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, but I'm I'm gonna have to. Just just when, those shows the title goes, yeah, that'll do me. When twins kill, that's yes. brilliant. When twins okay. kill is the best because they do reconstructions, but it's very hard to find um actors who are also a member of a twin of twins. So they, they can act the twins who are acting as the 
murderous twins, they can never act. So it's basically like wooden spoon theatre, but with a lot of murder in it. And uh, it's pretty great. I mean, as a sort of piece of art. Uh, <laughs> but Wives with Knives is even better, I have to say. Um, it's interesting. It's interesting you, you bring up the thing about re, about uh, reconstructions because I'm sure, as as you have, I get asked quite a lot to be a sort of talking head on these kind of documentaries about various, and they've always got very trashy titles, you know, killer clergy or oh. you know, vacation murder. And I just show up and I go and I say what I'm supposed to do. But the first question I ask before I get involved in something is, does it have reconstructions? Because if it has reconstructions, I tend to say no yeah. because they are always so trashy, and you just want to go. You weren't there. Nobody involved in, in making these reconstructions was there. Now, isn't that interesting? Because I have a theory that solving crimes as an amateur is very like being a psychic. You can have good guessing, but you don't really yeah. know, do you? No. You don't know. No. You're just guessing better. I mean, one of the things about the West Memphis Tree was the um, the blood splatter evidence guy was, was making it up, and a lot of uh, expert witnesses in the States are totally... Um, unqualified and that was one of the reasons those guys got done was the the blood splatter guy was totally discredited in the peter jackson documentary oh, wow we we will be talking way more to denise and matt after the break uh, they'll be telling us about their favorite true crime cases before that it's that time in the program once again when we see what our man with the spyglass our roving reporter paul hirons has been up to what have you got for us paul Yes, thank you, Mark. Now, seeing as you're talking to Denise and Matt about all things true crime, I thought I'd take a look at some of my own favourite true crime series that are currently available to watch right now. Obviously, with the success of series like The Keepers, The Staircase and Making a Murderer, all on Netflix, and also The Jinx on Now TV, true crime series are all the rage and there are lots to choose from. So I'm going to help you select a few from the crowd. Joel, cue the music. First up, Jack the Ripper, Case Reopened, which you can see on the BBC's iPlayer. Silent Witnesses' Amelia Fox goes back in time to take a fresh look at the Jack the Ripper case, one of the most enduring cold cases in British history, with the help of criminologist Professor David Wilson. Together, they not only unearth another victim of the Victorian-era serial killer, but also unmask who they think is the real Jack. Next, it's Killer Inside, The Mind of Aaron Hernandez on Netflix. Now, those of you who have been hooked on Netflix's Michael Jordan basketball documentary series, The Last Dance, and are craving another sports documentary, this one might be for you, but be warned, it does not have a happy ending. It tells the tragic story of Aaron Hernandez, a star player for the Super Bowl-winning New England Patriots. Hernandez seemingly had the world at his feet, but when he was arrested for the murder of Odin Lloyd in 2013, the sports world was shocked to its core. This three-parter tells the full, grimly fascinating story of how a man could not shake the shackles of his past, even when he lived the superstar lifestyle. Next up is Evil Genius, the true story of America's most diabolical bank heist on Netflix. Now, some true crimes are even stranger than fiction, and the four-part evil genius ably demonstrates this. It tells the story of Brian Wells, who one day walked into his local bank in Erie, Pennsylvania, wearing an explosive collar around his neck. He had been tasked with robbing the bank. Suffice to say, 
that things did not end well for Mr. Wells. But what this series also uncovers is not necessarily one diabolical mastermind, but perhaps an insidious network of diabolical masterminds. CNN called it one of the most complicated and bizarre crimes in the annals of the FBI. Next, McMillions on Now TV. Another extraordinary story, this time a scam involving an unlikely backdrop. This five-part series details the $24 million worth of fraud that corrupted the McDonald's Monopoly game between 1989 and 2001 throughout America, where there were almost no legitimate million-dollar winners in the contest. The perpetrator? One man who worked for the marketing company hired by McDonald's to organise and promote the game. You'll relish watching this one and no doubt say burger me after you've watched it. Yes, yes, I, I really did go there. Uh, finally, Don't Fuck With Cats, Hunting an Internet Killer on Netflix. Sorry, Mum, sorry about the language. Described as one of the most disturbing true crime documentaries ever, this Netflix series plugs into what Denise and Matt were talking about when it comes to online amateur sleuths. It tells the story of a group of Facebook users who attempted to track down Luke Magnotta, a Montreal native arrested for the killing and dismembering of Jun Lin in 2012. That's after he anonymously posted videos onto social media showing him torturing and killing several cats online. Told you it was pretty disturbing. So there we go, five true documentary series to get stuck into and sate your grim thirst for horrible, real things. Mark, it's back to you in the virtual incident Zoom room. Thanks, Paul. Now we're back with brilliant crime writers Denise Miner and Matt Veselovsky, and we're talking about true crime. Um, we had Ian Rankin on the podcast uh, in a previous episode, and Ian told me that he collects cuttings from newspapers about true crime stories, and he sticks them in a, in a folder and will occasionally sort of dip in and browse through them for inspiration. Are you always on the lookout, either of you, for, for, for things in the news, stuff like that? You're, you know, you're nodding at me, so I'm guessing. Yeah, but good it. ones. Like, I'm not interested in, like, gambling ones or gun ones. Like, I don't, like... Yeah, financial crime. Ugh, boring. <laughs> I want, like, a good serial killer who kept someone's head in a jar for a week. Do you know what I mean? Uh, okay. Okay. You're worrying me a little bit now, Matt. <laughs> yeah, maybe... Maybe said too much there, Mark. <laughs> what about you, Denise? You, you scour the newspapers? Really always. And and actually, true crime is what I'm interested in. I've got like 103 podcasts on my phone and uh, it's kind of encyclopedic. I listen to so much. and and But I'm always listening for those cases that are that make me think, what does that feel like? Do you know what I mean? Like I got a whole book out of this tiny thing about Newcastle and it was a couple that the police had been called for, with a noise complaint and they wouldn't open the door. So the cops and then the cops, the, was, the man was standing in the little space of the door and he was saying, I'm so sorry about the noise. We had to turn the radio up to drown out the screaming. And then his girlfriend was in the back and she was smiling, but she had blood all down her chin and neck. And these, because they knew their neighbour was quite elderly and they really liked her and they didn't want to alarm her, but he was pulling her teeth out because she was getting oh, messages. They were both on GBH or something like that and uh, they, they really liked their neighbour. But I was just thinking about, you know, what, what, what would that feel like? They're obviously really nice people who are in a really bad way. What would that feel like to... Um, 
be, you know, that's so carried away with your own internal world. So it's not always that kind of, you know, fit um, into a crime mould. It's more cases that really kind of make you, that kind of take you by surprise. And at the moment, I'm obsessed with the international arts market. And that's because of a, a, a documentary that I watched um, on Netflix, which was just a really unlikely kind of um, thing about uh, London is the the centre of the world art market and lots of things that were stolen from, from the museum in Baghdad um, are being sold there. Well, also, I mean, presumably you're, you're looking for stories that make you just leave questions. You want unanswered questions. I mean, exactly. it's a very simple story if, you know, uh, she killed him because she wanted the money. He killed her because of, you know, lust, anger, jealousy, you know, whatever the normal reasons are, yeah. people, in normal reasons, people kill anybody. But when something happens that just make you go, what? Hey, there was some case, a case in Gloucestershire just, just before the lockdown. Um, and a man and a woman were arrested in, in Gloucestershire when police caught them walking down the middle of the street with a human torso in a suitcase, just bowling down the middle of the street. And presumably that's the stuff that, that the antennae go up and you go, hello, there's a story here, right? Absolutely. We just had one up here where um, a woman cut her mother's head off and was carrying it round in a bag and showing it to her mates. <laughs> what, what, what kind of bag? <laughs> Tesco, I believe, Mark. Tesco, Tesco okay. If, if that's okay. what you mean. Uh, well, every little helps, doesn't it? Um, but I mean, that is—I mean, that is one of the reasons, presumably, why true crime is is so addictive. Because you know, it's such a cliche, but truth is so much stranger than fiction. I mean, just times a hundred, right? I think that's what it is. But I think it's also that it, it does take you into a totally different world, and particularly now during lockdown, when everyone's looking for a way to get basically out of their own life and out of their own anxiety it really takes you away to another world where things have become really extreme. And, 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 and I think because it's not taken seriously, you know, in crime fiction, we're always talking about, oh, it should be taken seriously. It should be treated like any other um, form of literature. I think we're missing a trick because I think people come to crime fiction and they come to true crime to be transported, but not to feel that they're, they're doing themselves some good or feel a sense of obligation to the form. It's just pure enjoyment. And that is what true crime is. It's just pure naughty enjoyment. I mean, it is like you feel ill, so you read this to cheer yourself up. Do you know what I mean? You used to, you used to be able to get full sets of Agatha Christie in secondhand shops that stank of Vicks, because that's the only time anybody read Agatha Christie was when they were apparently. <laughs> I want my books to stink of Vicks. I love that. That is fun. That's such a compliment. You know, it's such a compliment that you're the comfort thing people do. What did you say? Naughty fun. Naughty fun, do you know what Naughty I mean? Naughty fun. Yeah. Is that what it's going to now say on the bottom of your books? Naughty fun. <laughs> I think that might be overselling them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've, I've asked you both if you could if you could come up with a, a couple of your favourite true crime, crime stories. We've also we've already talked about a few. When I say favourites, anything that's perplexed or intrigued you, got you thinking. Who wants to go first? Who's who's come across a story recently that's yeah? I'll, I'll, I'll go first. Right. There's a there's a man walking on the beach in Vancouver, Canada. Uh, and he, he is actually walking a dog and the dog is bothering something on the beach and it's a bit of plastic and the man goes over and it's a trainer you see them everywhere but it has a severed human foot inside the trainer so he phones the police and the police come and look at it and they search the beach scour the beach find nothing else just one foot in a trainer um a week later someone is out on the beach different part of the beach different part of vancouver finds another severed foot in a trainer they don't match it's a, <laughs> it's a different different trainer different foot different foot size 
Two weeks later, someone pulls into a cove in their boat and they find two feet in different trainers and they don't match. They're all different. Four. Anyway, we now have four. Four. It got up to seven. Tra- seven feet in different trainers, none of them matching, no sets, all on this one bit of the Vancouver coastline. It turns out if anyone in the world falls off a boat, because trainers are mostly air, right? Um, the, the, the body falls to the bottom of the sea uh, the, the foot because that's a very weak joint in the ankle the foot and the trainer come away from the rest of the corpse float to the top and because of tidal waves because of tides they get swept into this one bit of Vancouver um, so any bodies that are lost from ships anywhere in the Pacific they all end up on this beach in Vancouver. But of course, they thought that it was, you know, mafia people chopping off one foot. They were looking for a lot of one-legged men that owed money. <laughs> <laughs> or a you know, serial killer with a foot fetish. And it just turns out to be about tides and the weakness of the of the foot joint. And, and, and how they, they make, make trainers. A training shoe. <laughs> what, what about you, Matt? And uh, mine's a bit more grim, unfortunately. Of course it is. It's not as funny. <laughs> you don't surprise me. <laughs> so I've, I've always been fascinated, like, why? Like, what makes a serial killer? So there's, there's been two in my life that, that have always fascinated me. Um, one of them was Elizabeth Bathory, the sort of medieval Hungarian countess, because there's two theories about her. Um, they say she killed up to 500 young girls, tortured people to death. She got sexual pleasure from torturing people. But because she was a high-ranked noble, she was a baron of, um, of Hungary at the time, and her family was something Bram Stoker took influence from uh, when he was writing Dracula. And there's a rumour that she helped sort of pervade the vampire legend across Eastern Europe at that time. But there's another theory saying that because she was a woman in power in medieval times, this was all just constructed by the church to bring her down. And I love that, that 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 we'll never really know. And I love the story of that. Um, I think that's a fascinating story. You know, she was either this prolific, depraved, psychotic murderess, or she was just a woman who had power. And I think that absolutely blows my mind. It fascinates me. Um, I, have to say, I have to say a great quote. Look at me, Toby, I'm beautiful again. That's yes, Edward Pitt yes. playing at Elizabeth Bathory. Sorry, it's just real ghost girls, Mark. I'm just Again. a bit frightened. I'm just a little bit frightened by that Ingr- impression. Ingrid Pitt, Ingrid Pitt Ingrid squeezing Pitt. a sponge oh. of blood on her body and her young yes. boyfriend. I've she met says Ingrid him. Pitt, you know. <gasps> no. Oh, yeah. hello. So there was a band, one of my favourite bands called Cradle of Filth, did an album about Elizabeth Bathory and they got Ingrid Pitt to do these sort of guest vocals on it. And um, she was doing a, a meet and greet at this independent cinema. They were showing um, Countess Dracula. So I went and I took my Cradle of Filth CD and she signed it. Um, and she was wonderful. She was absolutely class. Um, rest in peace, Ms. Pitt. But yeah, uh, the Elizabeth wow. Bathory story. And then there's Australia always has some good serial killers. Uh, really grim stuff. There's a guy called Derek Percy. I don't know, Denise, have you heard of Derek Percy? I'm not sure. Hardly anyone has heard of him. Horrific stuff, uh, like razor blades, uh, all sorts of like disemboweling children, awful human being, and um, and it's sort of it was never even picked up. It's never he's never been like a big hitter, you know, and it's never. <laughs> really, 
I love so much. Yeah. I just love the idea of serial ki- some kind of serial killer league. You know, he's <laughs> he's not a big. Yeah. He's always been like strictly third division. It's like yeah, what exactly. you said at the beginning. Does it make you the best serial killer or the worst serial killer? I think it makes me a serial killer hipster. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> so, so listen, where where does true crime go from here? Uh, you know, there just seems to be this inexhaustible supply of of unsolved cases and and you know this series being based on all sorts of things where's the future i mean post pandemic you know are are people going to want stories about how horrible the real world is when they've just lived through it or are they going to want a lot more naughty fun or are are the two things not mutually exclusive well i think it's going to be exactly the same as crime fiction which is it's suddenly people with oxbridge degrees are going to start writing crime fiction it'll become really dreary and very sick kind of academic form and uh, and we'll be kind of dimly remembered enthusiasts from a previous age. I don't know what Matt and I are going to write next. It'll need to be pornography or something, Matt, because <laughs> just isn't, there isn't a sort of legal. So then it be, yeah, then it's really naughty fun. <laughs> <laughs> but but I mean, you, if you look back, you can actually see this um, happening in lots of different um, uh, you know forms, particularly something like comics. Right. So what happens in comics? I started writing comics and people would say would say they treated it like a bar job and they were like, Why are you doing this? You know, it's so low class or writing adaptations was another thing. Now that's very posh. Um and uh, and then it it starts to make money. It's not really about the value of the form, it's about whether or not it's making money. So comics start being made into movies, they start making money, and then everyone's got the hand on the chin and you can't really talk about them with the kind of enthusiasm that we're talking about. And you're saying, Oh, he's a minor, he's a minor hitter, why is he never taken off? Do you know what I mean? Like uh, <laughs> and I'm thinking Albert Fish and I'm thinking Ed Gein and I'm thinking he needs a Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake. You know what I mean? <laughs> but uh, but so that's what I think is gonna happen, which is a bit of a shame, but um you know, one of the lovely things about crime fiction was it was always printed on cheap paper. It was always told to draw the attention of the audience. Um, it was it was never told as a kind of moral tale. Um, it was like it was for ghouls by ghouls, and we knew exactly what we wanted from it. And I think what's going to happen is it's going to be formalised and become a sort of academic forum. Sadly, is that what you think, Matt? Is that is that the future you see? I mean. As a latecomer to crime fiction and not really a crime fiction buff, I don't know, I think for me it's it's about telling good stories and I think we just have to up our game to tell good stories um, and keep telling good stories in crime fiction. I, think, I feel like crime fiction is being recognised for storytelling as opposed to being, like Denise, you say about it being easy, about it being trash, you know, because... The crime writers I know and the crime books I've now read, everyone tells amazing stories, you know, and I strive to try and tell better stories. You know, my latest book, Beast, um, I really had to think about what would be modern, what would be a modern crime story. And the latest book is about a vlogger, a YouTube star who gets imprisoned in a tower on the northeast coast and decapitated um, and really had to search for like a good, relevant modern story and almost reflect society in that. And I think as writers, we just have to we have to stay above it. We have to keep knowing our Derek Percy's and uh, you know, like being a bit ahead of the game. Maybe throw some a few more pornographic bits in. You know, <laughs> why not? Why not? Well, listen, I, I certainly know my, my Derek Percy now. But before I let either of you go, um, we always ask our guests on the podcast for for a recommendation, something to read, something to watch. Um, so, Denise, Matt, have you got uh, either something you've read recently, something you've seen on TV, other than Wives with Knives? Um, that you'd like to recommend, Denise? 
well, at the moment, I am right in the middle of watching the Children of God documentary, which I've avoided because I don't really like things with child abuse in them. But it's really, really interesting and uh, and very, very well done. Uh, what I'm I'm reading incessant Chandler at the moment, and I'm listening to the audiobooks and uh, the ones on Audible are brilliant and they're really, really well read. And uh, yeah, so I'm, I've just finished uh, The Woman at the High Window and that's basically not, I haven't got anything new to recommend. I feel bad about that. No, it doesn't need to be anything new. Matt, what about you? I found, like, lockdown, I found it really hard to get into anything, like, fiction. I found it just, nothing was doing it. And I was finding myself reading loads of, like, Lovecraft and Macken and stuff like that. And that was the only thing that was doing it for me. Um, recently, though, I've got back into it and I've just finished uh, My Dark Vanessa by Kate Elizabeth Russell. Uh -huh. That's magnificent. That's really well-written, excellent okay. piece of writing, very topical and very modern and really Well, some, some as great a, recommendations well, listen, Oh, you've got more. As a podcast, I would recommend Trashy Divorces. Which, which is about trashy divorces and it's perfect for lockdown because it's just slagging off people that you'll never meet and they're, because it's a podcast they're really disinhibited and they're just like he is trash it's brilliant and it's it's uh the last one was about boris johnson oh, oh nice. well I, i'm going to throw in a recommendation I, there's not too much crime in it at the minute but i, I we're, we're obsessed in this house with 90 day fiance I don't know whether either of you seen that. It's trust me, ninety day fiance is well <laughs> worth watching. Um, and I'm so glad we got to do this because because the three of us were supposed to do this on stage. We were supposed to do this as part of a, a podcast festival on stage. And obviously because of what's happened, we're we're now doing this virtually in three different cities. Um, but there we go. A huge thank you to both Denise and Matt for joining us on the latest episode um, and proving just how fascinating art can be when it imitates life. You can watch all the best crime drama on Alibi, which is available on Sky, Virgin Media, BT, and Talk Talk. If you've enjoyed with this podcast then please remember to review rate and subscribe i know i always say it but it really does make a huge difference to us and to the future of the podcast if you don't well i won't be happy and you might end up being the subject of a true crime documentary yourself mwahahaha etc a special thanks to our producers paul hirons and joel porter my name is mark billingham and thanks for listening mm -hmm.